Let's, uh, let's pray together, church. Uh, Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus. Um, God, I pray you'd give us eyes to see and ears to hear what you want to say to your bride this morning. God, I step up here. I have no desire to try to um, impress people. I've been doing this too long to care about that anymore. Um, my desire is your anointing, and I want you to impress your truth onto people's hearts whether they're in this room or whether they're sitting on um, their couches or in recliners at, at home. We want to hear from you. We want a word from you. And so I'm asking you, just want to take my words and, and turn them into power and into truth and speak to your people what you want to say. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen. Psalm 118 verse 24 says, This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18 says, Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Colossians chapter 3, verse 15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Philippians chapter 4, verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication and with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. James 1.17, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 28 says, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence, and all. Psalm 136 verse 1, give thanks to the Lord for he is good and his steadfast love endures forever. You know, one of the themes that we see uh, all throughout the Bible, though I certainly think it gets magnified in the New Testament, is the theme of gratitude. As believers, we are called consistently and unequivocally to be a grateful people. It is evidence of grace upon our lives that regardless of circumstance, regardless of status, regardless of cost, we will declare the goodness and faithfulness and never-ending love of our great God. What I'm trying to say is even when we are in want, we will worship. Let me tell you what I think breathing is supposed to look like in the kingdom of God, like what I think it look, what breath is supposed to look like. Now, in our natural world, uh, when we breathe, uh, we're told, at least people are way smarter than me, say we breathe in oxygen and we breathe out carbon dioxide. In the kingdom of God, I don't think that's what breath looks like. In God's kingdom, I think our, our breath is supposed to look like we inhale grace and we exhale gratitude. We inhale grace and we exhale gratefulness. We breathe in grace and we breathe out thanks. Now what I want to talk to you all about this morning, church, is where I believe our gratitude should be rooted. I want to talk to you about what I think should be the primary source of Christian thanksgiving. 
I want to talk to you about why I think authors in the New Testament, people like Paul and James and the author of the book of Hebrews, continued to call the early Christian church to be grateful, even in the midst of times of persecution and oppression and imprisonments. And to do that, I'm going to share with you a story about Jesus from the Gospel of Mark. And it's a pretty great story. So I would encourage you to buckle up, okay? Put the seatbelt on. At the end of Mark chapter 4, Jesus is on the boat on the Sea of Galilee with his friends, with the disciples. You all know this story. They're on the boat. They're on the sea. Huge storm comes, uh, a squall, and it shakes the boat, tossing it to and fro. And Jesus is there asleep on the boat, but the disciples are freaking out. And so they go to Jesus, and they wake him up. And Jesus gets up and he asks the guys, he's like, where's your faith? And then he turns and he looks at the storm and he says, peace be still. And when he speaks, the Bible says the wind and the waves obeyed his voice because they recognized his voice and the storm stopped and the water went still. Now, as soon as the storm passed, Jesus and the disciples continued on to where they were going and they docked their boat in the country of the Gerasenes. Boat pulls up to the shore. Jesus takes one foot, steps out of the boat, and as he does, a demon-possessed man who lived among the tombs runs out and falls right there at Jesus' feet. Now, this is me talking for a minute, okay? This is what I'm about to say to you. It's in Bible stuff. This is Brock stuff, just thinking about this story. But there are a couple of things that I hope are, are happening here. One is, you know, Jesus would oftentimes leave to go off by himself to pray. And so I'm hoping at one of the occasions where he was doing that, that he felt something in his spirit stirred about the evilness of this place. And something that stirred in him in compassion about this man and what he was experiencing. Because really, they have, he and the disciples have no other reason to be going to such an obscure location. You know, it's not, this is the only encounter that happens there, is the encounter between him and this man who has the demon. I also think it is interesting that in, uh, earlier in the Gospels, when Jesus is being tempted in the wilderness, Satan goes to Jesus. Like in that scenario... Satan is being the aggressor. In this scenario, Jesus has become the aggressor. He is going after Satan, going to where the evil is, or at least going to where some of Satan's minions are. And it shouldn't be a coincidence to, uh, to us that in the process of being on this sea where this big encounter is about to happen between Jesus and his slew of demons, that a storm would come upon the sea. I mean, it kind of seems like maybe somebody or something didn't want this encounter to happen. I think it's possible that Satan sent the storm upon the waters trying to prevent this moment, which also makes it that much more cool that Jesus just stays asleep the whole time. He's like, I'm not worried about this storm that is raging. Anyway, their boat docks, they land, Jesus takes a step off the boat, and here comes the garrison demoniac running out of the tombs, and he falls on his knees right at Jesus' feet. And as soon as Jesus sees him, church, he starts trying to cast the demon out of him. He calls for the demon to leave him alone. Now, we're given, Mark gives us a little background on this man. We're told, this is the information we get, we're told that he lives uh, amongst the tombs, so he lives in the cemetery, the town cemetery, 
We're told that they've tried to shackle him multiple times, like for his safety and for the safety of the community, but every time they put chains on him, he's so strong that he just breaks him. And then we're told that day and night, this man would run throughout the hills and by the, the graves, and he's naked, and he's screaming, and he's picking up rocks, and he's cutting himself. And now he's on his knees before Jesus, and Jesus is trying to cast the demon out of him and listen to what the, the man says. He says, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? Don't torment me. Jesus asked the man, he said, what is your name? And the man said, my name is Legion, for we are many. It would seem that this man wasn't just being consumed by one demon, but by many demons. He'd been taken captive, not just by one evil spirit, but by a bunch of evil spirits. And the way we know that to be true is later, Jesus cast the evil spirits out of the man. They go into a herd of pigs, and then 2,000, or around 2,000 pigs, then run and jump off a cliff committing suicide, diving into the same sea that Jesus had just stilled, which I think is pretty cool as well. Now, in Rome, when they talked about a legion, they were talking about the military, and it was usually somewhere between uh, a legion of troops was somewhere between 3,000 and 6,000 troops. So when we say this guy had been taken captive by demons, by evil spirits, they were on him. I mean, he was covered in evil. Now, maybe it's just me, but it seems like there's quite a bit going on in that story, right? And I'm kind of hoping that, especially since I opened the sermon today, you know, listing off those verses that are all about gratitude and gratefulness, I'm kind of hoping that at least somebody in the room, somebody, okay, and that's a pretty interesting story, Brock, but what does it have to do with gratitude? I'm so glad you asked, okay? I really look forward to getting to tell you. Let me show you. If you would, turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 5, and we're going to look at these first 13 verses together. Same story I just told to you. We're going to look at it. And as we do, I really want you to be asking three questions. But ultimately, they're all just a variation of the same question. And here it is. I want you to ask, what did the uh, demon-possessed man in the story do to deserve to be rescued? What did he do to deserve to be healed? What did he do to to deserve Jesus' mercy? So just as you're looking through the text, we're going to read through it verse by verse. That's kind of the question I'll be laying in your mind. What did the God do to deserve Jesus' mercy? Are y'all with me? All right, let's do this. Mark 5, 1 through 13. This is from the uh, NIV. I usually read ESV. This is NIV. It says, they went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you impure spirit. Then Jesus asked him, what's your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we're many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. He gave them permission. And the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. 
the herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Church, did you see it? What did the man do to deserve Jesus' mercy? He did nothing. Absolutely nothing. Now, there are a lot of times in the scriptures, one of them happens in Mark chapter 5 later on when he heals the lady dealing with the issue of blood. He says to her, my daughter, your faith has made you well. There's the time when the guys lower their buddy down through the the ceiling and that healing takes place. And Jesus says, their faith made him well. This isn't one of those occasions, okay? There is nothing here to show that this guy deserved to be healed at all. If anything, when he approaches Jesus, he's mocking Jesus, talking about, in God's name, don't torment me. And yet Jesus healed him anyway. Why? Because he's that good. Because he's that kind. Because he's that compassionate. Because he is that loving. Church, our gratitude should be rooted in the goodness of God. The source of our gratefulness is God's grace. If you have a relationship with God through Christ Jesus, meaning if you consider yourself to be a saved person, then just like the man in the story, there is nothing that you did to deserve your salvation. There is nothing that you did to deserve rescue. There is nothing that you did to deserve Christ's mercy. And even so, church, one day he pulled up on your shores and he freed you from your chains and he saved you from your demons. And because of that, I think every day we should be on our knees thanking God for his imminent kindness. Every day we should be breathing in grace and breathing out gratefulness. Gratitude that is rooted in circumstance is fleeting. Gratitude that is rooted in the goodness of God is secure. Our circumstances will change. Our God never will. You know, we live in a very entitled culture. I don't know if y'all are aware of that, but we do. People think they deserve everything. You know, I mean, people, people were like, man, I, I deserve to drive a really nice car. You know, I've earned it. Uh, I, I deserve a better job. I, I, I should be able to make more money. I deserve a man or woman in my life who will treat me like the rock star that I am. Rock star. <laughs> you know what the Bible says we deserve? It says... We deserve hell. It says all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and the wages of our sin is death. The Bible says we deserve hell. We deserve judgment. We deserve eternal torment. But Jesus, Jesus came to our rescue, the incarnation, the crucifixion, the resurrection. Church, when we think about what we should have got, and then we think about what we did get, and what we're going to get, our only response should be gratitude. We did nothing. Jesus did everything. Like, the very least we could do is live a life of thanks. The evil spirits begged Jesus uh, not to be sent away, not to be sent out of the country. 
they asked to go into their herd of pigs nearby. They asked to be sent into the pigs. And it seems kind of odd to me, but for whatever reason, Jesus complied with their request, and he sent them into those pigs. The pastor, Charles Spurgeon, pastor, preacher, author, once preaching on this text, said that he believed the reason the demons asked to go into the pigs is because they wanted to go anywhere but home. The idea being that hell is such a horrid place that not even the evil spirits wanted to be there. Can you imagine how bad hell has to be if not even the demons want to return to the deep? If they would rather be in these unclean animals drowning at the bottom of the sea? Spurgeon said this about hell. He said, if we're half as wise as the demons are, we should dread beyond all things to be driven there. May God grant that no soul among us may ever lift up his eyes in torment and find himself in that awful deep. When I was a kid growing up at these country churches in Maynardville, I used to think that the church and pastors preached about hell too much. Now I think we talk about it too little. Heaven and hell are very real places. And if you know Jesus, it is eternal life. And if you do not, it is eternal torment. Salvation is found no place else. Romans chapter 10 verse 9 says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Church, Jesus did it. We just have to believe it. We just have to trust it. We have to trust that he did what we could not do on our own. The gospel has the power to save us from hell and from a meaningless earthly life. Like my friend Rod Collins used to say, the only thing that we bring to our salvation is our sin. Y'all understand that? That's it. Jesus takes care of the rest. Now, if you believe Spurgeon's interpretation of this story, and I think I do, Okay, I'm not exactly sure, but I find his, you know, his interpretation, I find it to be very interesting at least. But if you believe his interpretation of the story, it means that Jesus didn't just show mercy to the demon-possessed man, but he showed mercy to the demons. How crazy is that? When they asked not to immediately be sent home, he granted them their request. He at least bought them a little bit more time. I know some of you have a hard time believing that, but I believe that Jesus really is that good, that he really is that kind, that he really is that loving. I mean, he spent a lot of his life walking with the disciples, talking to them about, hey, you're supposed to love his, your, your enemies. And now here's a perfect example of him showing, this is what it looks like to show love to your enemies. So the demons went into the pigs, and then the pigs ran off, 2,000 of them ran off a cliff, suicide mission into uh, the sea, and they drowned, which I think is crazy because I learned this week that pigs can swim, so like I don't know what's going on with, with that. I mean, that's, that's, that's what I do with my time. Yeah, pigs are capable of swimming. I don't, know, I don't know exactly what happened there, but they jump in. And the people in that town are very angry, okay? They're mad because th- th- this is their livestock. This is the way that they made money. 
And so they're infuriated by, by Jesus. They're very frustrated by him. And not only that, but they come to Jesus in their anger and they see this guy that the Bible says, the demon possessed man, is now in his right mind and he's clothed and he's doing really well. And this scares them like crazy. Because, I mean, they've seen the evil power that had dominated this guy's life for years. And if now there is a power in their midst that's even greater than what they had experienced, they believe they're supposed to be frightened by it. And so they immediately begin to ask Jesus to leave. Like they beg Jesus to get out of town. And he does. Uh, The whole experience, this whole encounter between Jesus and the Gerasene demoniac, he's probably in the country of the Gerasenes maybe three hours. Like, this is a very short period of time that he's there. And so he agrees, he goes, he walks, he's getting on the boat to leave with the disciples. Got one foot in the boat, and the guy that he's just healed comes running to where he's at again. And now he begs Jesus to go with him. He's like, please let me travel with you. And this is how Jesus responds to him. Ultimately, he tells him, no, you can't go. And this is what he says. He says, go home to your own people. Tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he's had mercy on you. And then the Bible says that the guy went home and he talked about the mercy that had been shown to him and that all the people in the community were amazed. Church, I have one more thing that I want to say about this story and then I'm finished and here it is. I want you to make note here that mercy was enough. I want you to see in this text that just mercy, mercy was enough. So when the guy, when Jesus heals the garrison demoniac, when he heals him and he sends him back to evangelize his community, he doesn't sit down with the guy and walk him through Wayne Grudem's systematic theology. He doesn't explain to him about what the meaning of the Trinity is, right? He doesn't even give him like the, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, like cliff notes of the Sermon on the Mount, or share with him the parables that he's been sharing with the disciples this whole time. No, he doesn't do any of that. He just says, hey, the mercy that I showed you, go tell people about it. The way that you've experienced my grace, go, share, go tell people what the Lord has done for you. Church, some of you need to hear that this morning because I know there are a lot of people in our world who are afraid to share their faith with other people because they're afraid you, you're afraid you're going to say the wrong thing. You're like, I don't, think, I don't think I'm educated enough. I mean, I think that's something that uh, a pastor, that's something Brock should do, that's something that, that Mark should do. No, it's so much simpler than that. Church, mercy is enough. If you have been redeemed, tell the story of your redemption. If you've been healed, tell people in your life the story of your healing. If you have experienced evidence of his grace in your life, go and be that evidence for other people, the people who know you and surround you. Mercy is always enough. I really don't think we handed out those journals last week and we asked you, hey, be tracking evidence of uh, on the bright sides, evidence of grace in your life. Just if you experience God in any given day, the way that you experience him, write that down. And I really don't think that that task is complete until we have experienced evidence of his grace and then we've shared that with other folks. We've experienced it and we go, let me, let me tell you what God, let me tell you what God did in my life yesterday. Let me tell you what he did in the day, the day before that. We track it so we can share it. We track it so we can share it. I'm going to share with you now about the best meal that I ever had in my life, okay? Y'all good with that? Best meal I ever had. So on mine and Bethany's first wedding anniversary, 
we were in Wilmington and hadn't been there very long. And at the time I was serving as a youth pastor of a church that I ended up serving at for uh, a pretty long time, but I was making about $250 a week. And uh, our rent was around $500 a month. And so I mean, you do, don't take, I mean, you do the math right there, Gary, you're smart. You can kind of work out those details and you see, there's not a whole lot of money left over at the end of every month, you know, for us to be after paying our bills, water, all those things. And so our first anniversary rolls around. I'm thinking, ah, who knows what we're going to be able to do. Luckily, a couple in our church, Randy and Betsy Costin, friends of ours, they came and they gave us a $50 gift card to this really great seafood restaurant in Wilmington called Blue Water. The uh, restaurant is on the intercoastal waterway. I mean, like you can walk, the, the, the ocean's there, the waterway's here, you can just walk back and forth. I mean, it's just a beautiful place. Food, uh, it was incredible. And so we got dressed up that night and we went out uh, on this date. And I, I'm just a poor kid from Mainable, right? Like I have no idea how to order seafood. I mean, like the length of my seafood knowledge is like Captain D's or Long John Silver's. I'm, I'm asking the lady working there, I'm like, do you have the little crunchy things in the little basket? Like, can we get some of those? They didn't have them, right? It was, wasn't that kind of place. But she comes up, and so I'm like, I'm going to trust her opinion more than I trust my opinion. And so I asked the lady, I go, uh, what, what's the best thing that you all have here? Uh, what's the best thing that you serve? And she goes, well, the thing that we are known for is uh, a seafood lasagna. She's like, I know it sounds weird, but it's delicious. I'd highly recommend you try it. And so I'm like, that's it. Put it down. And so she goes back, place order, brings it to the table, and it's banging. I mean, this lasagna, it's a mixture of uh, lobster meat, crab meat, shrimp, scallops, noodles, cheese, this delicious sauce. And so I, I remember, I mean, it was a long time ago. Bethany and I have been married a long time. And I remember like taking my fork and putting it into the corner of this thing and taking the first bite of it. And when I put that food, when I put it in my mouth and I swallowed, I did that thing that we do when something's really delicious, or at least it's what I do. I was like, mm. and I let, and I let it up. And so the waitress, I think was kind of nervous because she had recommended this, and so she's wondering, well, does he, is he happy with it? And so right as I've taken that first bite, she comes up behind me, and she hears me go, mm, and she's like, uh, I was going to ask you if it's, it's good, but I could tell by your exhale, I could tell by your response that it's, you're, you're liking it. And I was like, yeah, that's all that you need to know. Church, a lot of times I think people outside of the church are waiting to hear us exhale. Psalm 34 verse 8 says that we are supposed to taste and see that the Lord is good. We've done the tasting. We've experienced his goodness. We've experienced his grace. Now to complete the task, we've got to go, mm, oh, he's so good. Oh, he's so Oh, this is, I'm so, I've experienced it, I've tasted it, and I am so pleased with it. I really believe that for the church, that would be our greatest form of evangelism. Not necessarily going out and sharing all the different words, but just allowing people to see that, hey, even in the midst of pain, even in the midst of pandemics, even in the midst of trouble, hmm, God is still so good. They're waiting to hear us exhale. We've inhaled the grace. Now we breathe out gratitude. We've inhaled the grace. Now we breathe out thanks. I believe that our gratitude should be rooted in the goodness of God. 
that the primary source of Christian thanksgiving should be God's grace. The Lord calls us consistently and unequivocally to be a grateful people. Pray with me. Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus. God, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your grace. Help us to be grateful. Help us to not forget where we came from and where we are. Help us not forget what we should have got and what we did get. And may our lives reflect your goodness and our gratefulness for what you've done, for the incarnation, the crucifixion, the resurrection. Nothing we did, you did it all, and we celebrate it. Let us celebrate it now in our worship. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.